Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. I'm Chris. And this week, we are talking about love in Avatar The Last Airbender and possibly The Legend of Korra as well. Yeah. Before we get into Avatar, we should ask ourselves a question. So, what is your love language? Okay, so if you all don't know, there's like theory about like five different love languages and usually people have a top two or Mm -hmm. something like that the the ways that they prefer to express and receive love expressions of love and so these the the five are gift giving quality time physical touch words of affirmation and acts of service acts of service yes yeah you can't forget that one because that is my top one yes and Really, my top ones are acts of service and quality time. Mm -hmm. So, yes, those are the ways I receive love. The ways I give it, I'm not sure if they're the same top ones. Yeah, I'm not totally sure. I think acts of service, yes. But I also really love giving for people. Not because I love it in concept necessarily, but just because... I find things all the time that I associate with people or I think they would like and I just like want to give it to them. Mm-hmm. But then I also I want to spend time with people like if I haven't seen someone in a while or whatnot. Like I don't want to have, oh, I only have an hour I can spend with you. Like I mm-hmm. want to have like a good amount of time that I can just give to them. But we all know my least proficient love language is words of affirmation, which you podcast listeners could probably have guessed (laughs) (laughs) i've certainly found that out um, because that is definitely my preferred way to receive affection is through words of affirmation i just love being told how great i am or how okay i am but yeah i that's definitely my my go-to like receiving okay you have a few five-star reviews why can't that be enough i do love that um it honestly makes me so happy but uh I think my my other one would probably be acts of service. There's definitely been sometimes that you've done something really, really kind to me and it's like helped get me out of a funk or done something that's like made me feel very loved and, and like that can be really, really powerful. So At least I have one um, out of the two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in giving, I think I'm not as good at giving gifts. It's something that doesn't come to mind typically for me. And I'm probably not as great at quality time because I can be kind of an introvert and so I mean I think you're good at quality time I don't know maybe I think for sure I'd give words of affirmation when I can and then I try to give acts of service yeah yeah you've you've been good at giving me acts of service at least okay that sounded really bad yeah Yeah. (laughs) we're gonna just move on from there there's no way to no way to help that So, why don't you start us off with a quote that has nothing sexual or uh, no undertones at all. (laughs) Sounds good. So, this is, this quote comes from the episode where Aang is spending time with Guru Pathik and just learning about the different chakras and kind of like opening those up. Mm Mm-hmm. And so in this episode, he's, he's talking to the guru, and the guru says, You have indeed felt a great loss, but love is a form of energy, and it swirls all around us. The air nomad's love for you has not left this world. It is still inside of your heart, and is reborn in the form of new love. And I, 
yeah, I think that idea is really, I don't know, nice and poetic. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of like the love other people have shown you is kind of reborn in a new way as you show love to others. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it kind of reminds me of my favorite song by the Beatles, which is my favorite band, um, The End, where the only lyrics really in the song are, in the end in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And I think that that's a really, really nice thing of that, this idea of like love is something that's given and, and received and like that's kind of part of this process, right? Of this mm-hmm. flowing um, energy that's kind of coming through all of us. I, I like that a lot. I mean, and that would be the hope, right? right. Obviously, we know in this world that, that, that it doesn't always work out mm-hmm. that way, unfortunately. Because some people really like taking. That's true. And then there are people like me who just don't like to give it. Sorry. That's <laughs> also true. Um, in the form of words, okay? <laughs> but uh, do you have a character who exemplifies love in Avatar? I do have a character. And... I was trying to not go with, like, the most obvious, but how can you not go with the most obvious? Like, how can you not go with Uncle Iroh? So I just had to choose him. I mean, I think Aang super exemplifies a lot of these things, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of the characters do. But some of that we've already talked about in terms of, like, the airbending community and stuff like that. So Uncle Iroh is just such a loving character. And I think that you see it. Not just for his devoted, unceasing love for Zuko, Mm. but also just in everybody he meets. Like, he meets Toph on his his way and, you know, has a nice cup of tea with her and talks with her even though he doesn't know this person. He doesn't need to do anything. Technically, she'd be the enemy nation, right? And then when a guy tries to mug him, he's kind to him, too, and, and sits down and talks with him. And, and even to the extent of, like, how he prepares tea for people, mm-hmm. it's like it is, for him, this loving act. And then it made an impression on me, not in terms of love as much as in terms of, like, how sad it was when I first saw it. And in the episode of Tales from Ba Sing Se, mm. when he basically goes up to this hill and makes a little, or he honors his his son who had, who had died. And he, he sings and, and he lights these candles and he has a picture and he just spends time in that. And definitely I, it was obviously very sad when, when watching that for the first time of like for that loss. But mm-hmm. the love behind that didn't really strike me as much until I read Soren Kierkegaard's Works of Love. Mm-hmm. And he talks about in that book like... Loving the dead is actually one of probably the most selfless, free love that people can have because you're loving someone who cannot give anything back to you. And maybe if you don't love the people who died in an active way, maybe you never loved them to begin with because as soon as they're not present, that falls off. So when we watched it this last time, that's something that kind of made me think of. Yeah, Iroh is the best and absolutely so loving. And I think that his joy comes from that too. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that he's not led an easy life and yet he remains a positive outlook. And I think so much of that is a loving thing. 
he's not only affected by the love that he sees in the world, but like that's a way of showing love too, is bringing joy into other people's lives and treating people with respect and love and dignity no matter what and with positivity, I think is, is really, really amazing. I do think it's interesting with his character though. We don't know that he always started out this way, mm-hmm. right? Because he was a part of this nationalistic military campaign to take over the rest of the world right and obviously he changed Mm -hmm. and and he decided not to do that but it's just interesting because you how we see uncle iroh it's so much of yeah his just unending compassion and love for people but it's interesting to think that yeah he didn't necessarily always have that yeah yeah that is interesting and I definitely, I mean, he's the character I'd, I'd love to know more about. And yeah, I, I, I would especially love to know how that transition kind of occurred for him. You know, mm-hmm. where was that immediate? Did he pick up more of this as he saw Zuko in need? Mm-hmm. Where did he get that from? Because he had the same father as Sozin. So, or yeah. I'm sorry, not Sozin. Uh, Ozai. Yeah, as Ozai. So yeah, it's interesting. Well, what about your plot? My plot is in regards to the love that Aang has for Katara. Aww. But specifically the scene at the end of the Ember Island Players mm-hmm. when he kind of confronts her and he says, you know, at that point, one of the, the Ember Island Players had said that she loves him as a brother, right? Mm-hmm. And so he kind of confronts her about this idea and, and mentions that they had kissed after the invasion and then that he thought they'd be together, but she says, you know, she's confused and she's unsure. And the moment that I want to specifically talk about is how he kisses her mm-hmm. after she says she's confused and she calls him out for it. You know, she yeah. says, I just told you I'm confused. What are you doing? And she, she goes back inside and he does immediately say, like, I'm such an idiot. What were you thinking? Like he, he mm-hmm. chastises himself for it. But I, I was actually surprised you didn't choose Aang because I think Aang is such a loving character and such a loving character in the ways that I know you appreciate in characters. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a really interesting dynamic to bring in of seeing a character who is so loving and so giving in so many ways show a sense of entitlement to love and a sense of thinking he knows what's best for Katara by kissing mm-hmm. her without a real affirmative consent. And I appreciate that the show also shows the response to that. I think that that so many, especially young children's cartoons and stories have an element of kind of this fairy tale idea of love that can be really problematic, Mm -hmm. that has ideas of they just are in love and so be it and it's fated or it's, it's for the best. And a lot of times those decisions are made for female characters in particular. And I love that they don't show this as just being, of course, they're going to get together. Of course, she likes him back. And when he oversteps his bounds to try to to show his love and, and, and to, you know, get her to love him back, that's not a loving act that he's doing. Though it may be mm-hmm. from a desire for love or a, a having a feeling of love and wanting to express that, it's not, that doesn't make it a loving action. Yeah, it, at that point, it ceases to be love for this other person mm-hmm. and it's more love for yourself, mm-hmm. right? And and with his character, you can see how he would be a little confused. Mm-hmm. They, they've kissed twice at this point because the cave of two lovers, mm-hmm. right? And, and then before the invasion. But still, yeah, like part of loving someone is listening to them and listening to what they're saying. And she's saying 
she doesn't know and she's confused and they're in the middle of this war right now and this is like not the time for these things Mm -hmm. and so yeah i love that she does call him out on on that and he's like oh no i'm an idiot which you know is the correct response and it absolutely (laughs) is and i think that's the big thing because i right now radio lab's doing a great series called in the know like no no based off of or in response to Caitlin Prest's series about no on the heart. And both of them are dealing about ideas of consent and those mm-hmm. kind of what are quote unquote gray areas when consent has not been given, nor has it been ensured that it's not given, right? Mm-hmm. And how people engage in, in oftentimes sexual relationships in these gray areas and how that can affect their relationships or affect how they feel about things and make women feel violated and all sorts of different things. And one of the things I heard was about how for many of these, especially young men who are being accused on college campuses of sexually assaulting a woman, their first response is not, what have I done to upset you? Or how could I have done something different? Or I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's always like they, they have that fear of being accused, which overrides that. And it's such that is, I think, a selfish response. Of course. Um, because, yeah, there are some some areas in there where they may not have been aware that what they were doing was going to be a violation. Right. Or make the woman feel violated. But that doesn't necessarily mean that once they find that out, they should not be actually prepared to take on the the responsibility of that and actually do what they're what they can to the best of their ability moving forward to take that responsibility and to apologize well yeah and it's it's not hard to ask the question Mm -hmm. ask if something is okay so maybe it maybe it disrupts the flow of interactions right maybe you know it could kill the mood but so it's a way better Mm -hmm. that you know for sure that everyone's fine with everything that's happening than than the alternative so yeah it's just it's it's not hard exactly so yeah i would highly recommend you check out that series if, if you're a podcast aficionado but that was definitely on my mind when i was thinking about love and avatar and, and that scene in particular and i think that ang makes a mistake but i like that ang immediately realizes he made a mistake and i i do wish that they had maybe done more with like a fallout from that because it's not really brought up again until the kiss at the very last episode which shows that she is now happy to be in love with him but it's also a kid's cartoon and diving deep into issues of consent and appropriate behavior and things like that can be difficult but still yeah i'm i'm glad especially since it is a kid's cartoon that they did have that so totally yeah hopefully people can start thinking about these things when they're young yeah well, do you have a compelling question for me? I do. So my question is, what do you think the relationship is between love and being the avatar? Mm. I mean, I don't know if there is an inherent relationship between them. I think that this may not surprise anyone, but I'll go back to an important axiom of with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Didn't you just do that like last episode? I, was that on the, the air or was that just me talking to you? I mean, it could have been. It's definitely at least been on the air at some point. The point point is, it's a cliche for a reason, okay? (laughs) Uncle Ben had some wisdom behind his words. (laughs) Because the Avatar state is an immense amount of power, more power than anyone else in in that world has. And I think with that comes responsibility. And especially when I look back at when Aang talks to previous Avatars and they talk about what they've done with their lives. And how I think Avatar Karuk, the waterbending avatar, he focused so much on his own life. And he wasn't one who like really focused on the world and was really that giving. 
And ultimately, it ended up costing him in also personal ways and personal, you know, his personal loved one who gets her face stolen. So I see kind of how different avatars have navigated that. I guess I guess the way that the the fact that it's the avatar, because it brings that 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 power with it, it also brings a sense of duty of using it lovingly, of using it in a way that is giving. And I think that you can even see that from the beginning with Aang because his first mistake is running away when he finds out he's the Avatar. And that is a selfish act which leads to him being frozen for a hundred years. And so there is some sense of responsibility for the world being the way it is on him running away. Though I I can see why he would do that. I do think that that the Avatar has that responsibility to treat the world lovingly and to be selfless and giving in that way. And that was a, a area where he did not do so, and it led to a lot of negative repercussions. Yeah, and that was, that was one of the things. He was younger, right, mm-hmm. than they were supposed to be before mm-hmm. starting his training and all this because of the Fire Nation and what was happening because yeah little kids aren't supposed to deal with the weight of the world literally all of the world depends on him yeah so yeah I think for me what I was thinking about is that in Legend of Korra they go back to the beginning of the Avatar Mm -hmm. right and there are these two spirits like one that was good and one that was evil Mm -hmm. that we were like wrestling basically for all time and i mean it's supposed to be order and chaos but essentially good and evil yeah was that order wasn't it i think so i don't think it was as clear-cut as good and evil something like that so the person who becomes the first avatar actually like fuses with that good spirit and then when Unalak then wants to be this kind of negative avatar mm-hmm. and become fused with with the other spirit and and you could see this direct difference between the two right and so I'm I was kind of thinking that from the beginning of the avatar it was this fusing out of love for each other and love for the world and and so I think that maybe that's somehow just kind of in there but yeah I think that not all of the avatars have done well with it and they haven't been as loving as they should be but Mm -hmm. from my perspective I think the avatar must to be a good avatar they must love all of the nations and not put any one above the other or else you're not going to be good at keeping peace and you're not going to be good at you know really fusing all of all of the four elements, which you're supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, I think even Avatar Kyoshi is a really good example of failing at that in that she mm-hmm. isolates Kyoshi Island from, you know, the rest of the Earth Nation in order to protect it. But if not for the that causing the death of the warlord, like, does she go back and actually ensure that there is peace after that? That there is still going to be things beyond what's going on in Kyoshi Island? That's That's good and loving and 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 orderly well considering avatar day it seems like she didn't yeah exactly so it's it's i don't know that's a very interesting interesting take yeah appreciate that so what is your question for me my question for you is how you think sokka's losing his first love affects his relationship with suki hmm So I think that it definitely does affect him because in like the serpent's past, he is super overprotective of Mm. Suki. And she is 
way more capable than him. And it's annoying to her, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing? I can take care of myself. And he just has this fear that something is going to happen to this next person that he really cares about. And, yeah, so I think it affects him in that kind of, like, it has ramifications on his relationship with Suki that he is worried and he's scared of the loss of 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 what he has and I don't know I don't think that we really got to see if it made him not like open up or Mm -hmm. do those sorts of things so I I'm not sure about that but yeah I think it, it was hard for him to even kind of engage with like kissing her or something like that because he felt almost in a way like betraying Yue. Yeah, I saw similar things at first, you know. I think that mm-hmm. episode is really interesting. And I think it's it's interesting because it also shows the difference between Yue and Suki. Because as you mentioned, Suki's more competent than Sokka in most things. You know, he's probably a better planner, but other than that, she'll she'll be better at actually carrying out the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yue I think conformed much more to the traditional gender dynamics that a lot of times we see and Sokka clearly felt more comfortable in mm. where that was the biggest first hurdle for him to get over with Suki is those gender dynamics, you know, and mm-hmm. him thinking that he shouldn't be able to be beaten up by a girl or whatever. But with Yue he was able to actually show like himself as a protector in a lot of ways you know and and of course he feels like he failed in that sense which he then projects onto his relationship with Suki but it's just I think a very a different dynamic and I wonder how much of that difference comes from his experience with Yue dying or becoming the moon or what have you and how much is just he's now seeing Suki you know and she brings a different side of him out and she has different personality obviously as well Mm -hmm. because Definitely that first episode, like, he feels more kind of like he's betraying her. But then by the time they're camping together, like, they're, like, sneaking into each other's tents and stuff. And, you <laughs> know. his roses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that's a really interesting thing that I couldn't have necessarily seen him doing with Yue. I think that mm-hmm. him and Suki are more playful in a lot of ways and a lot more open. And I think that also comes with they know each other better. He only mm-hmm. knew Yue for two days before she became the moon and or whatever uh, it was. I don't know how long it was. Not long. It was long enough for Katara to get really good at waterbending. That's true. But still, I just, I think that, yeah, there's some, there's a kind of different discrepancies there that I think are really interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I think, like, he was the warrior mm-hmm. in that relationship. And Yue didn't really do much. She was like a princess who didn't really know how to do anything. and Except become the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Which obviously was very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. To the world. Totally necessary. <laughs> Sokka would not have been good at that. Yeah. <laughs> but it was kind of interesting because it seemed like her parents really protected her too, mm. right? Uh, because she had been so sick when she was a baby and that's that's how she kind of had this moon spirit connection. So, yeah. Yeah, I think with Suki, it challenged him to be a much better person mm-hmm. and have more balanced perspectives. Absolutely. Well, what about your missed opportunity? So my missed opportunity actually has to do with a romantic relationship as well. Okay. It is Zuko and May. Hmm. And I actually was never a huge fan of their relationship. I liked Zuko better with 
the girl who worked at the restaurant. Totally. I thought that she brought out this kind of fun, like more fun, lighthearted side of Zuko since, yeah, his life has been really rough too. And he had so much negativity and so much self-doubt and, and anger and all these things. And she kind of lightened some things. Mm-hmm. Whereas May, I feel like is so dismal all the time that I just didn't really get it. I, it didn't seem like a great match to me. There wasn't really much that was, like, much of a buildup for it. You didn't mm-hmm. really know. You had known that they liked each other before mm-hmm. and they'd grown up together. But that was basically it because most of the time they weren't even together. So, yeah, that was a missed opportunity for me. I totally see that, yeah. I, I think that I like their relationship more than you do, but I also can see how... I mean, you like dismal girls, so... That's true. Uh, But I can see how... Yeah, she wouldn't necessarily brighten his life. She, you know, she wouldn't temper his darkness. They could be dark in darkness together, which maybe that's that's good. But but she didn't really have reason to be dark. Not certainly, certainly not the same as his. But I think that she at least can understand what it's like to be to be in a royal setting and have like duties placed upon you that you can't control necessarily to feel isolated within a powerful position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just hard for me because Zuko is a passionate character Mm -hmm. and she kind of has no passion. Mm. The only thing she really cares about is him. And And throwing knives. (laughs) And for me, that's a problematic dynamic. I can see that. Yeah. Well, what do you find missing? My Missing Opportunity is also in a romantic relationship, although it's more about the representation of that romantic relationship, or lack thereof. I was going to say, what, kids shows don't do an amazing job (laughs) with romantic relationships? And that's the thing, is this does have to come with the disclaimer of, like, obviously this is a kids show, and so not every kind of, uh, we aren't at the place yet where LGBT representation is going to be that vibrant and that acceptable, which is unfortunate. But I do love the fact that Korra and Asami, though ambiguously, do end up together. I think that's great. That's really wonderful. But I wish that, that it felt more earned. I feel I wish that there was more in that last season that showed her relying on Asami or her building a connection with Asami beyond just, oh, we both are single now and neither of us have, have a romantic relationship with a male character and then in the last episode, she liked to go into the spirit world with her together. But, like, I don't see what makes Asami now special to Korra. That, anything that's changed, because Asami's always been capable and intelligent and beautiful and all these things that you could say are things that Korra's seeing. But, like, I don't think it show, does enough to show how they actually built a special, intense connection in the show. I think, I think they definitely could have done a better job. Like, I think that they should have started it earlier. Mm-hmm. So not even just in the last season, but in the se- at least the season before that. But I think in the last season, what it did show was that Asami and Korra were writing letters to each other. Mm-hmm. So they were communicating, and Asami was the only person that Korra really felt comfortable to talk about her trauma with. Yeah, she didn't really feel like she could connect with anyone, but for some reason she felt like she could connect with her. And so I think there was, there was something there rather than just, oh, it happened. But yeah, it 
definitely should have been fleshed out more. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, again, I I, I feel like that's, like you, you even said, like, for some reason she felt more comfortable with Asami. Like, I would love to mm-hmm. see that reason. I would love to see what it is about their relationship or that was able to get them to feel closeness that she didn't have with other people and actually see that in action because other than just hearing us hearing they wrote letters to each other, you know, and then, oh, she didn't write letters to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they did bond a little bit over making fun of Mako. Which I also really enjoyed <laughs> very, very thoroughly. But, yeah, I just, I, I wish that they had done a little bit more there. That's a very busy season. Yeah, it is. So I can see why they would, like, push that aside. But I just, yeah, it's, it's a missed opportunity for me. Well, and I think that's, maybe that's some of the reason. I don't, I don't know how much of their decision was to make it less controversial, mm-hmm. right? And how much was that they weren't just going to have them end up together when they didn't build enough into it. I don't know. Like, so it was implied, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't concrete. Right. Um, yeah. Though, of course, the creators have said since, like, that was the intention. That yeah. was what they are trying to represent. I mean, but, for sure. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, what about a takeaway or lesson learned? I think mine is that it's interesting and inspiring to remind myself that, especially for Avatar The Last Airbender, these are children. And the ways that they're engaging with ideas of love, be that romantic or a kind of selfless giving love to the world, is really, really remarkable. And I think that it's great that they don't stop being children, that the premise starts with, like you were saying earlier, Aang ran away because this was he was too young to take control of, or to, to take responsibility for the world, you know? Mm-hmm. That he was still a child and that was just being thrust upon him and he made a mistake that I think is understandable for a child to make. And then, of course, later on, him making a mistake with, with Katara that we are talking about earlier, I think it's interesting to see, yeah, how these are children who are, who are navigating these very intense responsibilities, both interpersonal and wider, but why I say it's inspiring is because I think that they they show such amazing lessons of how to properly do that, how to keep in mind that responsibility and that love for others, even when it's difficult, right? Mm. Even when he has to fight Ozai, literally the biggest dictator in the history of the world, Aang is trying to show love to him. He doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't feel comfortable doing that. As soon as he makes a mistake with Katara, he immediately chastises himself like i think that his the love that ang in particular shows in these situations is really really inspiring hmm. yeah one of the many reasons i love ang mm-hmm. so i think my takeaway is actually probably a challenge to myself to you to all of our listeners that whenever we're watching something we should be really aware of the messages that it's sent like whatever it is is sending about consent and gender mm-hmm. and and these different dynamics and and that we should i mean especially when we're talking about what people are letting youth watch right mm-hmm. but for all of us like things affect all of us and the more normalized things are the more problematic it can be to try to change those things and so yeah i think if this kid show can critique some of those things like we should be able to do that constantly Hmm. yeah yeah well with that why don't you turn us over to what we'll be looking at next week 
What is turning us over? Like turning us over to like the next page, the next part, the next aspect. The, the, the next page of this audio <laughs> yes, platform. Exactly. Perfect. Okay, so we're going to be back with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about family. Family and Star Wars. That'll be nice. Yes. <laughs> Unless we talk about the Skywalkers, which I'm sure we will. I don't know. Are, are they a family that's important to Star Wars? I don't know if we'll uh. have to, to go into that. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. You can also go to our website, bit.ly slash geekbetweenthelines, or go to our Patreon site at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. And as always, please make sure that you're, you're sending us those ratings, reviews, getting your friends subscribed to us, reaching out to us online. It's always, always great to hear from you. And I love engaging with the community in, in any ways that we can. For sure. We also want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. With that, we'll see you next time. Until then, geek, geek out. out.